morning I'm breaking up my prayer time a little bit, so we're going to have a little more of it in the message time. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Gospel of John, chapter 12. We have been just completed a couple of weeks looking at the triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We uh, come now to uh, a... uh, event that is only in the Gospel of John, which is not a rare thing, really. Uh, But we're also missing an event in the Gospel of John that is very precious to many believers. And that event is is the prayer of our Lord and Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the passage before us in the Gospel of John is really John's uh, replacement for that. Not that it is in the same time frame, but the content is very similar But rather than in the privacy of a prayer time the night before, John is going to take us into a very public place and see that here Jesus Christ also spoke of these very things that he, we see, agonizing over in the the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in a public setting here, we find him speaking about it and even uh, preparing himself for it. Even as he spoke about that in the prayer, Father, not my will, but yours be done, which has a huge theological ramifications for us, what we have studied in the past. We come here and we're going to see not only its impact upon who Jesus is, his relationship to the Father, and just how human is he? Is he 100% human or is he 50-50? Well, he's 100%. He had independent will from the Father. We can learn that from the garden prayer. Um, But here we're going to see the ramifications of what it calls for him, that he had full knowledge that this was his mission, and this would be its end. It didn't just dawn on him the night before, when he was about to be betrayed, that this was all happening. We are, of course, in John chapter 12, within the week of his passion. Uh, And so this is the Passover week. He has had his triumphal entry where they have shouted out, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So we've already had this annunciation of Jesus Christ as the King. And the accolades of the people of Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites particularly, and we have a record that many of them left off following after the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and started following Jesus. It was short-lived, and remember that's one of the major themes of John, is that there's a difference between belief and belief and real belief. And so we have three levels of belief in John. He uses somewhat the same term, but but he keeps going back to the idea of you can believe the facts and still not be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You can believe all there is about Christ, without being a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in our text this morning again, because it's a major theme of John, not only in this gospel, but in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well, in in his writings. Um, Because he was the last of our writers, really. These are some of the latest books that are written in your Bible. Um, Obviously, Revelation comes to mind. It's at the tail end of our book, um, as a close to our copy of the Scripture. And so we find that John was one of the last writers. And when he looked at the, at, at the church at, at that point in history, he had grave concerns already. We have concerns today, obviously, but he had grave ones then. And so he wrote about the necessity of enduring obedient faith. That isn't the start that is that, that, that sets you on the course for heaven, but rather it is maybe more closely aligned to the finish. 
that determines that. And again, we are going to study this because John's goal isn't to give us questions about our faith, um, but, so that, but his goal, as he says in 1 John 5, 12 or 13 that I shared with the We're Life children a week and a half ago, was that you may know that you have eternal life. That was his point of writing this. Because his fear was that too many people were little b believing. He wanted to move them to capital B believing, and he wanted to move them to becoming disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And it is in that capacity that we have absolute confidence now that heaven is my home. It is my final destination. And so John is wanting to move people from little b believing all the facts and I believe in God and everything is good between me and God because I pray now and then and I do this spiritual activity um, to truly being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so let's get into this in Gospel of John chapter 12. We're going to pick up Back in verse 23, Jesus' response, because there's a little phrase there we want to focus in on this morning. It says, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name, your name. We're going to stop right there in the middle of a verse, because it's really the end of a sentence. And so we're going to look at what happens right after Christ prays this very public prayer. Remember the setting from last week that we have here the Greek community that would have been in the court of the Gentiles, and Bill referred to it this morning, Sunday school as well, the, the ones far off. They were the ones separated, and whether they were involved in the triumphal entry or not, probably not directly. Um, these were Greeks that had come from all over the Roman Empire, um, as well as Jerusalemite Greece. We know that there were Greek-speaking synagogues there in Jerusalem. Stephen ministered to them, and it is that capacity that he was martyred. And so Stephen could have very easily been among this group that came and wanted to have an audience with Jesus Christ, the King of Israel. And Jesus' response is a little bit negative because it starts off with the word but, and so he doesn't meet with them because the hour of his glorification is at hand. And so in this very public setting where we have an entire group of Greek Jews that want audience, we have him surrounded here on the triumphal entry with all these who want to declare him king of Israel and establish his throne there at that time, not understanding that while they quoted out of one part of Isaiah, they ignored the other part of Isaiah. So they wanted the part of Isaiah that talked about the king, but they didn't want the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53, 54. They didn't want that. They didn't see that, but they did see the kingly part. So we have a very public setting, and Jesus, speaking to his disciples, declares something, a a theme that we're going to see picked up on here by John, and we've already seen it used several times. We're going to focus in on it this morning. That is the glorification of God in one's life. Jesus Christ says, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Now, if I went out and did an interview and went out and talked to Christians in churches and said, what does it mean to glorify God? When is God the most glorified in your life? And some would say, well, when we're singing praises to God and it just captivates us and it just comes up as a, as a wonderful melody before God, that is glorifying to God. Now, I'm not saying it's not glorified, but that would be their primary answer. But Jesus Christ isn't referring to that. He's not referring to a powerful worship service that, that moves us emotionally. Nor is he referring to an eloquent speaker. No, none of that. I said, well, what glorifies God? Well, when we have huge numbers and we have great multitudes and we have um, all this is what brings God glory. And I've been in conferences where I said, this is what must be heaven-like is when we, all these people gather in his name and, and when you have church conferences and, and association conferences and, and uh, uh, you know, and one of the things I always enjoy going there is just singing and because... We're just not that good, okay? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a different when you're singing among hundreds, right? And, and that's not our experience on a week-by-week on week basis here. And so you get in all those conferences and all of a sudden you got hundreds singing, and you say, oh, that's marvelous. Well, is that where God is glorified? That's not what Jesus is referring to. If we say, well, when in Jesus' life is God glorified? And we would probably say, well, at the transfiguration, that's when he's glorified. We would select a time like, well, at the resurrection, that's when God is glorified. None of those is what Jesus is referring to in this passage. The hour of Jesus' glorification was not what you and I would have ever chosen as a course of action for any given Lord's Day or any day, period. The hour of his glorification, he intimates right away with the next verse, and that is there's going to be some death involved. A grain of wheat is going to fall into the ground and die. What is the glory of the grain of wheat? The glory is when it gives its life to bring forth life. And we might say, well, and we have this little song in our country about amber waves of grain. That we look out and we say, oh, that's beautiful. When you see this beautiful field with, you know, a little breeze going over and all the grain just going, you know, they always show that picture. I think it's the same clip they've had for like 40 years. All right, amber waves of grain, and there it is, some field in Kansas or where they grow grain, somewhere in there. Corn is in Nebraska and Iowa, so it's got to be Kansas. Um, and we get that idea that that's the glory of the grain, but it's not. It's in the seed planted in soil where it dies. The preface to all that we think of as glorifying to God is the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And John is going to take this word glorifying God and remember who he's talking to. He's talking to first century Christians. The church has been around for maybe over a generation, 70, 80 years. Some of those first saints are passing. Um, he's the last of the disciples. And he's trying to communicate something to us. The glorification um, isn't the rehearsal and the renewal of, of Acts 2 over and over and over again. It is about Maybe the time the disciples got beat up and thrown out. 
that that's what we need to be preparing ourselves for. And so Jesus Christ here in this very public setting, we're going to see Gethsemane in a very private setting, the other Gospels, but here it's in the public setting, declares this to his disciples and to everyone present. And I'm convinced the Greek entourage was within hearing of this. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus Christ is preparing on, on the day of arrival into Jerusalem after all the hosannas, after all the king of Israel's, all, all blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, after all of that, after entourages are coming wanting to meet him and being thronged by the multitudes, his soul is troubled. And we're not talking about depression and things like that. No, he's troubled because he recognizes that all of this is a facade. The voices crying out, Hosanna, and cry out, crucify him, as we've been saying for weeks now. That this is not a political activity he's engaged in, regardless of what everyone else thinks. He is troubled about what is coming, that there is a death necessitating, necessitated by our sin. And because of his love for us, he is ready to take our place. And while he joyfully will do it, we're going to talk about the relationship of joy. Joy is a major component of, of uh, some passages we're going to talk about. I don't know when we're going to get to chapter 14, 15, 16. It, it might be January. But we're going to press on. <laughs> when we get there, joy and peace are going to be huge themes in those chapters. Um, so we're building towards that. But he results for the joy that's set before him, he endured. So he knew the destiny of it was joyful. But he recognized that what troubled his soul was the, the space in between now and that destiny. Not only in terms of his own personal suffering, but also of what was going to happen to all those people thronging to see him that day. Now tomorrow we're going to get a visit here in New Mexico by the President of the United States of America. And... Um, uh, we are taking huge measures in this city. Uh, he just follows me around because of all the times for him to visit Jerusalem, it's when I was there, and they took measures and emptied the city. Emptied the city, and we should have gone there because it was the best time to visit Jerusalem. There was no Israelites there. <laughs> no, there was no Jerusalem people in your way. Um, they just vacated because everyone assumed it was going to be chaos, and so no one went. And the highways were empty. And the next day, there was like a million people in the city because that was the 70th anniversary uh, or 50th anniversary of the liberation of Jerusalem. And, and so he was there. And, and by the way, he was also in Manila when I was in the Philippines. I, I'm serious. He's following me around. Okay. And the same thing. Certain roads are just completely stopped and to empty out this whole district. For Jesus, he's coming in. He's having that kind of attention and in the midst of this very public thing, you say, that's when Jesus is going to be glorified. Hosanna! Hosanna! That's not his glorification. That is not when the Father is most glorified. It's just by the lip service of people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. And remember, most of them are there not because they believe in him. They believe in the signs. They believe it because there's a guy walking around who was dead for four days. Lazarus. 
That's what they believe. They believe the signs, which is okay. That's the first little B belief. You believe the signs. You just said you should at least believe the signs. If you don't believe my teaching, you don't believe in me, at least believe the signs. So they're on their way, and the likelihood is many of these, thousands of these, are going to be the ones that are going to respond to the gospel at Pentecost. But for now, there's going to be a horrific failure of these lip service Christians who are declaring Hosanna, the king of Israel, blessed is you come in the name of the Lord, who are laying down palm branches, who are, who are laying, throwing their, their cloaks out before Christ uh, on the full of a donkey. And, and Jesus Christ is troubled because that is not the glorification that he's anticipating. You might say, well, that's when he's glorified. No. Glorification he's anticipating is a very painful event upcoming. It's his crucifixion. And so he says his soul is troubled, and you can imagine the disciples confused by this. This is going great. I mean, you've got a crowd behind you, and you've got Greek, you got Greek Jews coming. Every, everybody's ready to install you. We could just overthrow the Roman government right now. I mean, think about it. If they kill anybody, he just raises them from the dead. If they try to put a siege around our city, he can turn anything into food. Yeah, let's make him king. And Jesus Christ is troubled in his spirit. And he declares it. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And there, you can imagine their confusion. Uh, wasn't this the goal? I thought this was the kingdom. We're gonna, the kingdom of heaven is on earth. You're the king, and this is going, seems like it's going right according to plan. I'm pretty sure even Judas Iscariot was kind of pleased at this point. Once he sets up the kingdom, we're going to be the top 12 positions, and we'll be the magistrates in this kingdom of his, and this is going to be great. Why is he troubled? Why does he want to be saved from it? But Jesus Christ isn't talking about that because that's not the glory. We would think that's the glory, but not Jesus. When has God been glorified? What is it that Jesus wants to be saved from? Should I come to the Father and say, save me from this hour? Save me from the suffering and cruel death that I'm going to experience in a matter of days. The Gethsemane, it's a matter of hours. And hence the, the droplets of sweat blood sweat that he had there. It was hours, but now it's just a few days off. He's concerned. He's troubled. He knows the silliness of the crowd. He knows better than to let it inflate his thinking that somehow that couldn't be avoided. But there's a fickleness of man that we need to anticipate that they can sing your praises one hour and send you to death at another. His faith isn't in the, that. He isn't in the applause of men. His faith is in glorifying the Father. And so how can I pray to the Father to save me from this hour when this is the very reason I came? This defines who I am, is my mission here this week is to die. 
and it is in my death that the Father is glorified. And so, he says, this is the purpose I came to this hour. And his prayer, instead of, Father, save me from this hour, his, father, his, his prayer is this, Father, glorify your name. And this needs to be comparable to his concluding prayer in the Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And now in this public venue, days earlier, he makes this very similar statement, I am not going to pray to be, I'm not going to ask the Father to keep me from this job, this mission, but rather to be glorified in it. Father, glorify your name. I will do whatever is required of me to complete your love for these people. Let me say that again. I will do whatever you require of me. Whatever you require of me, I will do it to fulfill your love for these people. The Father loves, I mean, Jesus Christ declared it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I am here to be the agent of the movement of God's love to provide salvation to all the earth. Father, glorify your name by my obedience to that mission. And so the finality of Jesus Christ's mission is really his death. Um, the resurrection is the work of the Father. The Father is going to glorify it again. That's going to be in the voice we're going to see in a little bit. I will glorify it and glorify it again. We're going to get to that. So the resurrection's there. And, and, but imagine the incredible trust the Son had in the Father. I'm going to obey to death, and then my work is done until the resurrection. My work on earth has been completed. I will be the sacrifice to cover men's sin. Father, glorify your name. That's what I desire. And if I ask most Christians, they'll say, yeah, I would like God to be glorified in my life, which usually means that I want everything to go smoothly. I think I should be, uh, <laughs> have uh, lots of material things. I should have lots of friends. I have a huge amount of influence. I should have everything that happened on the triumphal entry day. That's what it means when God is glorified in my life. Because we have associated that group with the American dream of, you know what the American dream is, <laughs> of wealth and, and power and influence and, and fame, all that. We, we have put in the American dream, into, inserted it into the word glorifying God. That this is how God honors me, is the word that Jesus Christ used earlier. Him the Father will honor. Who is it that the Father will honor? Him who gives his life. But we don't associate sacrifice of ourselves with glorifying the Father. We think the glorification is only in the deliverance. And I'm guilty of the same thing. I, I've sat at sick beds. I said, Lord, um, glorify your name. Heal this person. Because somehow the healing glorifies him, but not the disease. Not the suffering. The suffering can't glorify you. But only the healing can. Wrong. Jesus Christ says, glorify your name. And what does he refer to that? 
he's referring to his own resurrection, his own death. He says, in this manner glorify your name. It is through suffering that we will glorify God. And let's look at it here. Verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. This he says, signifying by what death he would die. And we're not going to get into it. I don't think I'll time it. No, I won't. I won't have time this morning to get into the ramifications for the listeners of The Voice. We're going to talk more about that next week. In my notes, I actually put up dashed lines so that our song leader knew that I probably wouldn't get past that. But I've got four great points for next week, so come back. If you want to know what the voice meant to the audience there. But what we want to focus in on what Jesus Christ is referring to for this idea of glorification. A voice comes from heaven. I have been glorified. And we'll be glorified again. Obviously it's the voice of God. We have heard it before. We heard it at Jesus' baptism. We heard it also at the transfiguration. So this is, this is now at least the third time we have this heavenly encounter where God is affirming the work of his son Jesus Christ from earth or from heaven on earth. And so we have this affirmation. But Jesus Christ says, this isn't something I needed. I want you to notice that. Because it's pretty important to understanding uh, the nature of glorifying God by the sacrifice of yourself. By giving your life to God, which is complete discipleship. Okay, that's the capital D, discipleship. This path that we're maturing into that, that will give us that full confidence of eternity as presence, that we are the children of God. By this we know that I've given my entire life to him, that he can do whatever he wants with me and through me, even if it means death. I want you to notice Jesus' words in verse 30. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. We're going to look at the but for your sake later, but I want you to notice it did not come because of me. Jesus did not need the Father's affirmation to be obedient. Jesus did not need it. He had already determined to obey the Father at any cost and at every cost because he knew the cost. And we are invited to count the cost in Peter and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. We are called upon to think about this. And the disciples taught this. In the book of Acts, um, one of the things that was taught the disciples very early on as Paul is revisiting all the churches on his return home uh, journey um, in chapter 14 of Acts is he went from every church, and here's what he taught him, he must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Well, that's real helpful. Thanks for that. <laughs> Why is that a priority in the discipleship of the saints, because there God is glorified. 
The multitudes will follow Jesus handing out food. The multitudes will follow Jesus if it means a better life, if it means that you're going to fill my cupboards and let me drive Mercedes. The multitudes will follow you. The multitudes will follow Jesus who would become Christians if it meant health and wealth. Well, that's why the health, wealth, gospel people are so successful. The multitudes will follow that message every time. Why wouldn't we? You got a sugar daddy in the sky that just can't wait to give you stuff. You just got to prime the pump with a few dollars. Send it to me. Why wouldn't anyone do that? But the disciples... That wasn't their message. Their message coming in says you must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. You're going to have to suffer. That's how you glorify God. Brace yourself. Get ready. We get into Hebrews. It says, well, you haven't suffered to the point of bloodshed yet. That's why Hebrews is a great book for Americans to study because we haven't suffered. So we don't understand what it means to truly glorify God. And so we have substituted suffering with praise. When we, when we sing praises, that's when we glorify God. I mean, we even sing this thing. In my life, Lord, be glorified. And we usually mean, you should be happy to glorify me for singing this song. What you've just sung is, in my life, let there be suffering to your glory. But no one writes that song. So we have substituted things. For, so instead of enduring, now we, we pack the health, wealth teachers. And Jesus Christ says, I, right now, everybody wants to follow me because they think that I'm going I'm to raise them all from the dead. They're going to get free food. They're going to have all of this. And they haven't captured the message that I have been saying from the very, very beginning. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to what? Die. The disciples heard it repeatedly and it just hasn't taken any root in their life. It will. And I fear that it doesn't take root in our lives, that we don't recognize that God is glorified. The height of his glory is when the world hates us and wars against us. That is the height of God's glory in you. Now, in some cultures, that could mean that you get beat up, murdered, um, that all your stuff is taken away, your family curses you. Um, it could look like that. In our culture, it looks a little differently. Uh, the world just hates you. What are they allowed to do to you? Not much. Oh, you might not get a promotion at work. Aw, I'm suffering for Jesus over here. Doesn't look like it. Does it? When God glorifies himself. He says, I will glorify my name. I have both glorified it. That means uh, it's past tense. Jesus Christ has already endured so much as far as he is concerned it is complete. I will glorify it again. Uh, my name will be glorified in you, um, in your death, in this week, in your teaching, in the signs, and I'm going to glorify it again. 
God will glorify it. There will be a suffering. Do we see beyond that? Yes, we recognize that there are eternal deaths. Our eternal home is heaven's glory, where we will bask in the light that has its source in Jesus Christ, where we will enjoy the wonders of the new Jerusalem. We have all of that before us, and we recognize that there's a marriage supper of the Lamb where, where um, there's stuff that's going to burn up as hay and straw and stubble, and there are things that are going to be of value eternally in our life. I want to share with you what's going to be of value eternally in your life, the suffering for his name's sake which means that we are going to have a lot of hay and straw. We're going to have a huge bonfire at our marriage supper of the Lamb because we don't have much. Frankly, we just don't have much in terms of silver and gold that endure the fire. And Jesus Christ is trying to communicate that, and God is going to assist him. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ's obedience was not dependent upon um, the cheerleading from heaven. But I fear that too many Christians, if they don't get enough cheerleading, aren't obedient. Well, just obey God. I don't need to pat you on the back. In fact, you shouldn't want it. The Bible says that, well, you've received your reward. You want to have everyone know what you're giving the offering uh, so that you can get the applause of men? There it is. You just gave away an eternal reward for a temporal dish of applause. You're an Esau. You're an Esau. I don't need pat on the. I don't need encouragement. I don't need a thank you. I don't need a good sermon, Pastor. I don't need any of that. I don't really want that because you're robbing me in the future. I don't really like even getting paid, and that's okay. Because I'm being robbed of the future. Oh, that we would recognize the glorification of God, that our obedience glorifies God, and the more it costs us to obey, the more we walk with the Savior, the more the world will hate us, the more they will abuse us, as they did our Lord, so they should do and treat us and that we do not trust the lip service of men, but we recognize that ultimately um, when push comes to shove, they will choose themselves and they will hang us out to dry. And that's why the Bible says the end times, you can't even trust your family members. They'll think they're doing everyone a service, turning you over to the officials. We're now entering what a time of glorification of God. God is glorified in my life. Why? Because no matter the cost, I will follow Jesus. Not cost like Americans think, but true cost of suffering. Jesus Christ is prepared to obey. He's going to endure and complete his goal, not because of the cheerleading, but because he trusts and wants to f please the Father. Oh, that that would be the motivation behind all that we do for God. We do it because we believe in him. We do it because we are his followers. We do it um, for God to get the glory. And uh, even if it involves my humiliation, maybe particularly if it involves my humiliation. 
I've had a few times in my ministry life and approaching 60 years old, so now I have a pretty substantial volume of that from a human perspective anyway. I've had times when I was the favored. In fact, that's how I was, I was described by one missionary as the golden boy. Because I was in favor with certain administrators and certain quote-unquote important people. You know, so you're the golden boy and can't do anything wrong. And I was pastoring up in up at Rio Rancho, and I was the church planter. We were graduating that church, and I was on furlough and getting ready to start this church. And they're like, you know, he went from, he did all this, and, and I'm like, I, I, God did a lot more than I did. And it wasn't very long before the same people who made me, and I didn't call me, it was my peers that were calling me that, the guy, some of the people that made me that golden boy sought to destroy me in the ministry. And even to this day, think I don't belong in the ministry. So I've been at both, both places. And, and at this point, I don't think I could buy an opportunity to speak when years ago I was getting more calls than I could handle to come speak here, come speak there, come speak there. So I've been at both. The question is, when are you glorifying God? I believe God is more glorified in my ministry today than then. Not because I'm the better person, but because There are no accolades. When we throw money around as a church, we get accolades. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. As long as you give stuff away, you'll be applauded by men. So our church got this article in the Baptist Bulletin. It's back there if you want to read it. And they're reporting, I hope, uh, and not applauding, reporting the, our work in Rwanda. where we, I mean, that was a $5,000 thing we did out there and uh, gets everyone's attention. Okay? Uh, so yeah, you give stuff away and people like you. Um, one of the things that attracted me to Brother Wanyanyi at the conference in the Philippines was that um, none of that was important to him. And out of all the conversations we had, his were substantial. But when the guy wakes you up in the morning, he says, Brother, you're missing prayer. Let's go. Okay, this is serious stuff. Wednesday night, we showed pictures of the homes that they live in. They don't have floors. Well, they do. It's just dirt because their walls are dirt. just to impress upon the children how easy we have it. That a rain like this, they aren't very well sheltered from. When is God glorified in your life? When you're up here 
in the eyes of the world or when you're down here in the eyes of the world? I will contend with you that heaven has an opposite view. The time of Jesus' glorification wasn't the triumphal entry. I don't even know why we call it the triumphal entry. It's just the entry. The triumph is at the cross. He conquered my sin and covered it there. He shed his blood that I might be part of the family of God. That's the triumph. This entry with the accolades of man is not, it troubled Jesus, it troubled his soul. And I remember going up to Brother Shepherd, who's now with the Lord, and saying, and I, I drove to Arizona. I said, I'm troubled that you think I'm a golden boy. And his whole attitude, demeanor towards me changed. Because I made an eight-hour trip to say, listen, that's not who I'm trying to be. And just because they say it doesn't mean that's who I am. This is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's troubled in his soul. On the day of his accolades, he doesn't want to avoid, <laughs> he wants to avoid the suffering, but he understands the necessity of the suffering. None of us want to sign up and say, I want to, I'm, going to, you know, I'm not telling you to go home and beat yourself so that you can suffer for Jesus. You know. No, just live an obedient life and you will suffer enough in this world. The problem is we've confused obedience. And we've diminished it. And we are much more accommodating to the world than obedient to the Father. And when we look at our lives, we are not followers of Jesus Christ. We are interested parties in Jesus following the world. We are the Greeks. Interested parties in Jesus, but still following our own interests. Slightly interested in Jesus couple hours a week, that should do it, right? Oh, that we'd surrender ourselves to say, Father, not my will at all, but yours be done. May your name be glorified. Jesus did not need Jesus, God to say from heaven, I will do it for you. I have been glorified, I'll glorify it again. He didn't need that. He says, I don't need that. It wasn't for my sake. It was for all of you. We're going to talk about that next week because my time's almost up. We want to respond to this message with singing and we're going to do a little praying. Oh, that we would respond and recognize that to glorify God requires something of us, and that is that we stand against this world, that we stand against the evil one, that we stand up for righteousness. Will the world hate you? Will the world despise you? Will the world push you down? Yes. That was the whole point. The whole point is that they do that to us. Why? So that God is glorified. How does that glorify God? My suffering. Because it demonstrates that his love has gone out to those people and they've rejected it and they are going to deserve the judgment. We're going to see that next week. The voice came to judge them. Not to help him. Oh, that we would truly think that we should glorify God in our life, no matter the cost, and particularly by way of the cost, the cross, that we would follow him.
It is difficult. The journey of obedience is difficult. It was hard for Jesus. It's going to be hard for you. It's troubling. It'll bother you. It'll keep you up at night sometimes. How can this be? Why is this necessary? And it's not God's fault. It's man's sinful fault. It is painful. The journey's painful. Don't think that these apostles had some um, special ibuprofen that we don't have today. It hurt when you got stoned to death. Stephen looked up into heaven and saw his destiny and could endure the pain because he set his eyes upon heaven. But it hurt. And we know that there's a painful journey of obedience. We should expect it to be a bit painful. The Bible tells us that every athlete goes out and understands that, in fact, we say, no pain, no gain. Oh, the Christians would believe that. If an athlete believes it of his coach and trusts his coach over that, why aren't we believing our Heavenly Father? It's difficult, it's troubling, it's painful. That's the journey of obedience. The path is hard. And that's why it's important we get together frequently and encourage one another toward love and to good deeds because it's easy to want to just give up. Say, nobody is praising me, no one listens. That's my thing. I don't know why I preach, no one listens. Uh, we can sit there and boo-hoo ourselves, our situation. Uh, it's laughable because God's listening, and he's the audience that matters. The journey is difficult, but the objective of obedience. So the journey of, of obedience, difficult, troubling, painful, costly. But the objective of obedience is glorifying to God. The objective of obedience is joyous. For the joyous that before him endured the cross. The object of obedience is fulfilling. It has true purpose. This is why I'm here. And there are millions of people walking around you who don't know why they're here. But we do. We who are the capital D disciples of Jesus Christ, we know why we're here. We are on a mission that, that transcends any activity of man, and that is to offer to men eternal life. Our mission of obedience is fulfilling. It, we have a purpose and it's not to get a bigger house. It's not to get a, a better job. It's not to get a newer vehicle. And, and it's, it's not to fill the cupboards and freezers. Our mission, our purpose is to declare the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the world and his death, burial, resurrection, and to call men into obedience to him. And that will never be a popular message, but it's a fulfilling one. It's purposeful. And so while the journey is difficult, the objective is wondrous. We get to glorify God. We can have full joy and peace, which we're going to study weeks from now. Okay, months from now. Um, 
if you'd let me preach more often, if we could meet day to day, we could get through these books a lot faster, okay? Just letting you know that. <laughs> the journey's hard. But the object is the glorification of God. And there is no substitute for such a thing. Let's pray.